Adam and Eve had other children besides Cain, Abel, and Seth. We're told that explicitly in Genesis chapter 5 and verse 4. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. But they had other children before Seth was born too. Where did Cain's wife come from? She would have been his sister. That sounds really weird to our modern ears, as inbreeding is now prohibited not only legally, but also by God's law contained in the Mosaic law, but also in the New Testament. For example, in 1 Corinthians 5, we read about a man who had his father's wife, and that probably doesn't mean his literal mother, but probably his stepmother, um, which then doesn't specifically speak to inbreeding. But Paul's comment is that this is a type of relationship that is not even approved by the pagans. And so therefore, it's especially not appropriate among God's people. And so even among the pagans, there's this understanding that inbreeding is wrong, that that incestual relationships are not right, are not the way that things are supposed to be. So we see that both in the Mosaic Law as well as in the New Testament, that there's this implicit recognition in later Scripture that these types of relationships are not appropriate. And I think at least part of this is the fact that sin has a degenerative effect upon the human race. And so the gene pool would have been purer back in Genesis chapter 3 and 4 when Cain marries his sister and everyone had to marry brothers and sisters because everybody is descended from Adam and Eve. And since the gene pool was purer then, less corrupt genes would have been circulating back then, that close to the fall. And so there was not the same danger of corrupt genetics circulating back then and being inherited through those types of relationships then as there is now. And so I think what we see is that as the biblical storyline goes on, God mandates that those types of relationships, when they're no longer mandated by necessity, and when degeneration of the human race has occurred to such an extent that it becomes unhealthy, those types of relationships also become improper. So that's just a little bit of a side note, but these are the kind of questions that come up when we read ancient history. So that's one reason that the, um, pardon me, the lack of degeneration that had, would have occurred by this time would also be one of the reasons why people lived longer then. You would have caught in the genealogy that I just read, people lived a little bit longer than they do now. We're talking like 700 years, 800 years. We read about Methuselah living 969 years. Again, it's the fact that as time goes on, there's a degenerative effect of sin upon human genetics. I was actually speaking with uh, somebody this past week who told me that Sanjay Gupta, who is a medical correspondent for CNN, had gone on record as saying that if we could maintain the regenerative and healing processes that occur in our bodies around age 11, if we could maintain that level of regeneration and self-healing that 11-year-olds experience, we could live potentially for up to 1,200 years. So I went and did my research, and I found it. It's in his book, Chasing Life, that apparently if these processes that are happening in an 11-year-old's body continued indefinitely throughout our lives, we could live for probably up to something like 1,200 years. So this is 
This is even secular science saying that if there wasn't this degenerating effect at work in our bodies, it's not inconceivable that we could live for exorbitantly longer than we do. And so I think the best way to read this and the best way to understand this is that there has been a degenerating effect of sin upon human genetics such that that close to the fall, people's regenerative processes were functioning at a higher level than our regenerative processes are functioning now. We also read uh, later on in the biblical narrative that God says, I'm not going to strive with man, and so his days will be 120 years. And we read later in the Psalms that God says through Moses that the days of man will be three score and ten, which is 70, or if by reason of strength, 80. So there's also God's direct judgment, not just the natural degenerative effect of sin, but also God's judgment in limiting human life. So this is some of the stuff that's going on. People have also posited that before the fall, there was a different ecosystem, as it were, that we were living in. That um, I'm not going to go into all the details, but in terms of the way that the atmosphere was changed by the flood and so on and so forth, that we live in a different ecosystem, as it were, now than people did before the fall. And that that would have been a healthier environment for people to live in as well. So all of these things are plausible. We're to read this as history. We're not to read this as myth. And I think even Sanjay Gupta might acknowledge that there's plausibility to humans living 700, 800, 900 years. So we're not, we're not in the realm of myth. We're not in the realm of fantasy. We're in the realm of human history as we look at this narrative. So anyway, back to this idea that Adam and Eve had other sons and daughters between, besides Cain, Abel, and Seth. Presumably they had many other sons and daughters besides Cain, Abel, and Seth. God told them to be fruitful and multiply, and they lived for hundreds of years. And so it's likely, very likely, that they had many, many sons and daughters. So why then, why then, in this section of Scripture that we're looking at tonight, Genesis chapter 4 and verse 25, all the way to the end of chapter 5, why then, Does the scripture focus in on Seth's line and not tell us all about all of the lines? Why does the scripture not tell us about all of Adam and Eve's children and the way that all of their lines carried out or played out throughout history? We'll answer that question as we work through the text this evening. The first thing that we need to see is that the discussion of Seth's line reveals to us that the promised seed of the woman who would crush the serpent's head did eventually come from Seth's line. Now I know we didn't, we didn't read that in the end of Genesis 4 and in Genesis 5, but we read that in later scripture. For instance, the genealogy of Jesus Christ in Luke chapter 3 traces Jesus' lineage back through Seth to Adam. And Genesis chapter 22, verse 18, God says to Abraham that in your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. And Galatians 3.16 says that that promise was not referring to offsprings, plural, but to one, namely Christ. And so Christ is Abraham's offspring, and Abraham is Seth's offspring. And so even 
even the readers of Genesis would have understood that, or should have understood, that Abraham's offspring, singular, not plural, remember, Paul is exegeting Genesis 22, 18 in Galatians chapter 3. There's this promise that there will be a singular offspring of Abraham who will be the one through whom all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And so the astute reader of Genesis, even the original recipients of the book of Genesis, by the time that they get to 22, we'll see that Abraham comes from Seth's line and that the Messiah who is to come, the one in whom all the nations of the earth will be blessed, comes from Abraham's line and therefore Seth's line. And so one of the things that we see is that God is helping us focus in on Seth's line because Seth's line is the line through which eventually the Messiah, the promised one, who God said in Genesis 3.15 would crush the serpent's head, will come. Nevertheless, notwithstanding the fact that the Messiah would come through Seth's line, this discussion of Seth's line here in Genesis, the end of Genesis 4 and throughout Genesis 5, reinforces the fact that misery befell the human race when Adam sinned. We read at the end of, or pardon me, at the beginning of chapter 5, when God created man, He made him in the likeness of God. This is hearkening back to the goodness of the garden, the upright state in which mankind was created. And yet we have fresh in our minds the story of the fall in which the likeness of God, the image of God was defaced but not erased in Adam. It was corrupted, but not entirely obliterated. And so we read, when God created man, He made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, He created them, and He blessed them, and named them man when they were created. This is hearkening back to that blessed estate that, in which Adam and Eve were created. But then we read in verse 3, when Adam had lived 130 years, He fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. And so what we see is that though God created Adam upright in the garden, we remember it's fresh in our minds that Adam fell into sin. And now he passes along his own likeness, his own image, right? The remnant of God's image, that remnant of God's likeness, but also the corruption of character, the corruption of nature that he that came upon him as a result of his sin. And so we read over and over eight times in this passage and he died. 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 This chapter begins with the blessed estate of Adam and Eve in the garden. But as it unfolds the history of Seth's descendants, we read over and over about the death that came into the world through sin. We talked last week about how sad, how discouraging it must have been for Adam and Eve to see the death of the first human. But not only the death of the first human, but the death of their son 
There's something so wrong and so unnatural about a parent burying a child. Death is hard all the time. It's hard when an 88-year-old grandfather dies. It's much harder when an 8-year-old dies. It's hard to bury your father. It's harder to bury your son. And so Adam and Eve would have been so shocked, so disturbed, so discouraged to see what their sin had wrought in the world when Cain killed Abel. And as Adam lives out his 930 years and sees over and over this reality playing out, and he died, and he died, and he died. How he must have appreciated the gravity of what he had done. How he must, must have felt the gravity of what he had done, what his sin had wrought in the world. It must have been especially bleak for Adam, for all of these people to see Loved ones die, it would have been bleak and discouraging. But especially for Adam, it must have been really bleak and really discouraging. We sometimes look around and we see people dying around us. And the cycle goes on. Babies are born, babies grow up, and babies die. Right? We see generations rise and generations fall. And it's discouraging. Really discouraging. Think of how much more so it would have been for Adam. Think about the hopelessness that we're introduced to here for the first time in Genesis chapter 5. Reading about the extent of human death over and over and over. We read about one human death in Genesis 3, but then in, Gen- or pardon me, in Genesis 4, but in Genesis 5... We read over and over and over again, and he died, and he died, and he died. Isn't this the way that the world still is? And he died, and he died, and he died. We read in our history books about great figures of the past, and then we read, and they died. We read two dates with a little dash in between, and that tells us that the same thing is happening. And he died, and he died, and he died. Sin has introduced this horrible thing that we call death into this world. Adam must have wondered. I'm sure many others wondered. And don't we sometimes wonder, will God really be able to turn this Titanic around? Or are we going to go straight into the iceberg? Is this going going somewhere good? Really? Really? Is this going somewhere good, really? Or is this all going down? In this discussion of Seth's line, we see reinforced the misery that befell the human race when Adam sinned. And yet, in the midst of this, In the midst of all the death that we read about here, this discussion of Seth's lion offers further light 
at the end of the tunnel. Not only the fact that the Messiah will come through Seth's line, if you read Genesis as a whole, that becomes clear by the time that you're done Genesis, let alone the other 65 books of the Bible. You read about God promising to Abraham that in his offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. And then you read about one uh, from the tribe of Judah. The scepter will not depart from the tribe of Judah. One who will be a king, one who will be a ruler from the tribe of Judah. And all of this is telling us about the Messiah. That becomes clearer and clearer in later narratives. But even in Genesis, we see that it's first it's Seth, and then more specifically, it's Abraham, and then more specifically, it's Judah. We see this clarification happening, even in the book of Genesis, that there will be one who will come, who will crush the serpent's head, one in whom all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, one from the tribe of Judah who will bear a scepter. This is stuff that we see in the book of Genesis. But more than that, here right in this text, without looking more widely at the book of Genesis, we see a number of hopeful things, further light at the end of the tunnel, besides simply introducing us to Seth's line through whom the Messiah will eventually come. We see other hopeful things here in this passage. In Genesis chapter 4 and verse 25, we see God's sovereign overruling of human sin. Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. And if you have an ESV, you'll see a little footnote there where it says, God has appointed. The little footnote says, Seth sounds like the Hebrew, for he appointed. This, this one was God's provision of a replacement, as it were, for Abel. Cain tried to extinguish, well, Cain did extinguish his brother's life, but he did not extinguish God's purposes. That God raised up another brother in the place of Abel, and from this brother's offspring would eventually come the Messiah. So we see God's overruling of human sin. Neither Cain nor his ungodly descendant Lamech, nor even the whole line of Cain can overthrow and thwart God's purposes. That becomes clearer and clearer as the biblical narrative unfolds, but it's right here in seed form. Contextually, he will send his Messiah. He will preserve some godly men and women for himself. It's not all going to be like Cain's ungodly descendants who just degenerate into false worship and idolatry and who become boastful murderers. It's not all going to be this. There's going to be faithful, godly men and women in this world for himself. God will see to it. And so he raises up Seth in the place of Abel. And we see that it's Seth's line primarily who begin to be worshipers. It says, at that time people began to call upon the name of the Lord. That's an idiom for worship in the Bible. It stands for for worship, the worship of God. That doesn't mean that literally no one worshipped God before Seth. From the time Abel was killed until the time that uh, Seth's son Enosh was born, nobody worshipped God. That's not what it means. 
but he means that there was a, a prevalence of true religion, a prevalence of the right worship of Yahweh at this time when Seth's son Enosh was born. And we see that though Cain's descendants in Genesis 4 descended into false worship and into uh, ungodly living, and presumably many of Adam and Eve's other sons and daughters did as well because we don't read about faithful worship of Yahweh in the other lines. What it means when it says that at that time people began to call upon the name of the Lord is that there began to be widespread religion in the, in the right sense. Widespread right worship, correct worship of Yahweh, true worship of Yahweh. And this was primarily happening in and among Seth's descendants. It's interesting. There's even a contrast in naming between Cain's line and Seth's line. Some of the names that we read in Genesis chapter 4 apparently mean things like ornament and lovely one and things like this. We'll contrast that, hold that thought, and in a moment I'm going to talk about what some of Seth's descendants' names mean. But what you see is that Cain's descendants are naming cities after themselves, calling their children Lovely One and Ornament. They're, by God's common grace, building cities, developing tools, uh, working out systems of agriculture, and so on and so forth. All of these kinds of things, they're as it were, self-sufficient and so on and so forth. And they take pride in themselves and so on and so forth. There's a contrast in those names with even some of the names of Seth's descendants. And this shows a difference in priority because back in that, those early days, people didn't just name their kids names that they thought were nice or names that they thought were just sounded nice or had a nice ring to them, but they gave them names that had meanings underneath them. And so it shows where the priorities of Seth's line and where the priorities of Cain's line were at. So we'll come back to that in a moment. But what we see is that Seth's line, in contrast to Cain's line, generally speaking, were worshippers, as opposed to pagans. Matthew Henry comments on this and says, Here, Cain was a father of shepherds and a father of musicians, but not a father of the faithful. Here was one to teach in brass and iron, but none to teach in the knowledge of the Lord. Here were devices how to be rich and how to be mighty and how to be merry, but nothing of God. In contrast to Cain's line, Seth's line shows evidence of true worshipers, particularly Enoch. We read about him in verses 21 through 24. Verse 22, we read that Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. This imagery of walking with God comes up again and again throughout Scripture. We saw it even in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 1. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling you've received. This is, this is a statement that Enoch was a man who worshipped rightly, who had, a, who had a right relationship to God, who lived in proper relationship to God. And 
So he was a, a true worshiper. We see in Enoch especially, but in all of Seth's line, through that general comment that at that time people began to call upon the name of the Lord, but particularly in Enoch, we see some tangible hope for the human race. After reading about Cain and his descendants, and then Lamech, who boasts of killing a man uh, for wounding him, and killing a young man for striking him, boasting and blaspheming God, it's encouraging to read about true worshipers. We see that all hope is not lost, that God really will continue to relate to mankind. There were prophets in Seth's line. Jude 11 explicitly calls Enoch a prophet. Now it's interesting. The name Methuselah means he dies and then it comes. Or he dies and then the dart comes. Now, around the time that Methuselah died, what came? The flood. Now, look at at this passage. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. After he fathered Methuselah. I read this week and I thought it makes sense. It's very plausible that God spoke to Enoch around the time of Methuselah's birth and revealed to him the judgment that was coming upon the wicked. And at that time, brought Enoch under conviction of sin. At that time, regenerated him and called him to faith in himself. And Enoch, responding faithfully, called his son Methuselah. He dies and then it comes and repented of his sin and began walking with God for those 300 years. But Enoch was for sure a prophet. Jude, Jude verse 11 tells us that. I think it's fair to say Lamech was probably also a prophet as well. Look at the naming of Noah. This is a different Lamech, by the way, than the blasphemer in chapter 4. Same name, but it's a different guy. In, in chapter 5 and verse 29, Lamech called his son's name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Some have speculated that Lamech thought that this son might be the Christ, but there's no real reason to think that because unless God had revealed that to him, why would he think that about his son? There's no real good reason to think that. Obviously, you wouldn't know the character of a baby such that you would predicate that this baby must be the Christ. So probably much more likely is that God revealed to him what 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 5 tells us, that Noah would be a herald of righteousness, a preacher of righteousness, that Noah would be uh, himself a prophet, as it were, and that Noah would proclaim God's judgment and God's salvation. In other words, the gospel, right? In order, which is the means throughout history of God bringing relief from the curse, relief from the painful toil of our hands. And so, it's likely that Lamech was also a prophet. And when you think then of Enoch's naming of Methuselah, or pardon me, yeah, Enoch's naming of Methuselah and Lamech's naming of Noah, and then you go back and contrast that with Cain's descendants, ornament, lovely one, right? 
ornament, lovely one. He dies and then it comes. Right? This one will bring us relief from the curse. You can see where the hearts are at, where the minds are at, where the attitudes are at. So what we see in this genealogy is God's sovereign overruling of human sin. Worshippers in contrast to Cain's godly line. Prophets. And thereby, in all of that, what we see is God's willingness to continue to relate to fallen men who relate to Him on the basis of faith. What you see is that God has not cast off the human race. That after Abel dies, that's it. Cain's line goes to pot. Everything goes to pot. There's no more faithful in the world. There's no more godly in the world. There's no more true worshipers. God has abandoned the human race. No. You see that God continues to relate even to fallen men who will come and approach Him on the basis of faith. We look at Hebrews chapter 11, that great chapter, by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith. We read in verses 5 and 6, By faith Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. Now did he please God by his works? By his righteousness? By his merit? Hebrews 11.6, immediately following. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. Put two and two together. The end of verse 5 says that Enoch was commended as having pleased God. And immediately after the beginning of verse 6 says, and without faith, it is impossible to please Him. And so what we saw over the last couple of weeks, that after Adam falls into sin, after the covenant of works is broken, God reveals a new way to relate to Him. A way that is by grace. He institutes the sacrificial system, showing us that if we will put our trust in a substitutionary atoning sacrifice that He will deal graciously with us in spite of our sin. That He will continue to be in relationship to us. He will not cast us utterly off. But if men will come to God by faith, men may walk with God. Men may have relationship with God. Men may be worshipers of God. That men may own God as their own. The Lord, the covenant name of God. Remember, not Elohim as He's presented to us in very, very early Genesis, simply as just Creator, but the Lord, Yahweh, the covenant God, that we can be in covenantal relationship to God, rightly related to Him, that He's not just God up there, but my God, our God, should we approach Him by faith. As it was with Abel, so it is with all of Seth's line. So it is particularly with Enoch, we see, that God will not cast off the human race in its entirety, but continues to deal graciously with men, calling men to faith in Him, calling men to faith in His promises to send the Messiah, calling men to faith in His provision of atonement, and that when men respond to God with faith, 
that not only shall they walk with Him, but implicitly, He shall walk with them. We can't say that Enoch walked with God and that God did not walk with Enoch. That makes no sense. So we see in Seth's line that God's gracious dealings with man continue even after Abel dies and goes into the dirt. Even after his blood is spilled and runs into the ground, God continues to deal graciously with mankind. He raises up Seth. He raises up Seth's offspring. He reveals himself to them. He continues to relate to them by the same means that he has always related to men since the fall, by grace, through faith. And so obviously, this is an encouragement for us to continue in faith, to persevere in faith, trusting that God is ready and willing to deal with men and women who come and relate to Him by faith. That though we are imperfect, though we have sinned, though we have fallen short, that God is not looking for men and women who have perfect lives to relate to Him. That God will not only walk with those who live perfect lives, who live completely spotless, unblemished, holy lives. But God will walk with men. God will walk with women who will walk with Him by faith, who will trust in His gracious promises, who will offer up that spotless Lamb as atonement for their sin, who will trust in the promises of God's goodness and God's benevolence to them through the Messiah. Just as Abel did, so Enoch did, so all of Seth's line, or most of Seth's line it seems did, and so we may today walk with God by faith. And we can be confident that when we walk with God by faith, He will continue to walk with us. When we walk with God by faith, His path isn't going to suddenly take a turn away from us. But that when we walk with God by faith, He also walks with us. This is a tremendously encouraging thing to think about. And another application of this is that we may look around us at the world today and see that Cain has killed Abel, as it were. Things are looking pretty bad. Right? We may see that Cain's descendants prosper. Right? That there are the ungodly all around us. And yet God shall always have Seth and Seth's line here upon this earth. That God shall always preserve a people for Himself. That God shall always have worshipers here. When there seems to be no way there will be a way. I was just listening to a sermon this week. One of the things that the pastor was talking about was about how in China they tried to stamp out Christianity altogether. To persecute believers, to kill believers, to imprison believers, to burn Bibles. And now wouldn't you know, there's over 30 million Christians in China. Though Cain should try his best to kill the faithful worshipers. Ah, uh, Yes. God shall always raise up Seth and Seth's line. God will always have His people. God will always preserve a people for Himself. God's purposes to have for Himself a people shall always prevail. 
Christ Jesus Himself said, I will build My church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Though things look bleak, you can trust that God's purposes to do just that shall prevail. If you think about it, when did things ever look bleaker than at the cross? When did things ever look bleaker than at the moment that the life of the Son of God was extinguished upon the cross? When we saw the one that we had hoped would be the Messiah hanging there. And then bowing his head and giving up his spirit. When did things look bleaker than that? And yet, even then, God had his purposes. And God was bringing his purposes to pass. So Cain kills Abel. The high priest, the council, Rome, conspires together to kill even Christ Jesus. Even now in this world, unbelievers seem to prosper. God's people seem to be beat down, discouraged, marginalized. We can be sure that God will preserve a worshiping people for Himself. There will always be Seths. There will always be Seth's line that God will continue to walk with people who walk with Him by faith. And these are very encouraging things. God will ultimately accomplish His purposes. Great is God's faithfulness to His promises. And therefore great shall be His faithfulness unto me, a Christian. And great shall be His faithfulness unto you, Christian. And great shall be His faithfulness unto us all as Christians until finally all of His purposes shall in the end ultimately prevail.